Hello everybody and thanks again for tuning to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. In this episode we're joined by Yanis Iqbal. He's an independent researcher and a freelance writer based in India. He's written extensively on the subject of Colombia, neoliberalism and revolutionary politics within the country. In this episode we discuss how neoliberalism shaped the dynamics of revolutionary politics, how extractive capital has radically altered regional ecologies, and how police brutality has been instituted due to imperialism, and in what ways has agro-export crop production combined with accumulation by dispossession to generate a hunger pandemic. All of that and so much more on this episode. If you like what we do here, give us a follow on Twitter at lumpen underscore radio. We have a new website now, that's lumpen.co.uk. And a Patreon for extra bonus contests at patreon.com slash lumpen podcast. So yeah, give us a follow on Twitter. We post pretty decent posts, I reckon. And yeah, special love, solidarity forever for all of us supporters on Patreon. Really makes this show what, what it is. We can put the time into it that's needed. Some people are just too dumb to understand it. I mean, that's complete nonsense, right? It can be taught to anyone. Uh, it is intuitive to some degree, and it's not like an intelligence thing. And, you know, we had some placards, one of them, which said the pre-factual point that Zionism is racism. You know, it's not just a moral stand, it's a political stand. What you're talking about is the role that Israel plays securing the interests of US and British imperialism in the Middle East. And I would be talking about Iraq or Afghanistan or something today where I am. And I like understand these conflicts that have literally been going on since I was born. It's just like horrifying. It's not it's not British culture, it's just the world's culture. They love stories. They love this idea that there is this nation that looks like this. I think it's a distraction from the class struggle, to be honest. Yanis, thank you very much for joining us on Revolutionary Lumpen Radio and for reaching out and then making this episode happen. We're going to all walk away from this or sit down from this enlightened on the situation, neoliberalism taking place in Colombia. So before we go into the topics at hand, which you've written about explicitly in the past, I've read some of your work. It's really illuminating and enlightening. So this is going to be a great episode. But we always love to get an introduction from a guest on the podcast, you know, so that our listeners know who we're speaking to, what's your background, where did you grow up? How did you get into politics? Just anything like that goes a long way to show what our listeners just who we're talking to here before we dive into the episode. Okay, so I am a student and freelance writer based in Aligarh, India, and I became a Marxist uh, due to the vast leftist literature which my father has. So by reading those books on my own, I became a leftist. Yeah, that that's awesome. Boss background. What made you want to write so much about Colombia? I started writing about Colombia as part of a much more wider project on Latin America. Because, you know, Latin America has been a continent which has been perennially exploited by the U.S. And that is why it was also known as uh, U.S.'s backyard. And I really want to engage in what a sociologist named Buaventura de Souza called a sociology of absences, in which you try to reveal the hidden voices of the exploited and the marginalized. And I think in Colombia, we have many such kind of people who 
need a platform on which they can express their own demands and that is what i am doing i don't claim to be uh, leading them somewhere i am working with them and that is what the sociology of absence is and in a more specific sense i want to study colombia because it is home to a guerrilla group called farc revolutionary armed forces of colombia people's army and not much focus has been paid on that guerrilla group and that is why i am trying to analyze their role their structure and what they have been doing for the past many years yeah excellent we're going to discuss farc so people do indeed get that illumination on what's taking place with the people on the ground the people on the ground who are being you know murdered tortured by paramilitaries in Colombia you know there's illegal paramilitary groups that are like unofficially sanctioned by the government in Colombia you know whether it's murdering labor organizers or displacing an indigenous community because the US corporation wants to drill for oil on the land or again for bananas we're talking about as you say this US's backyard which is Latin America and this is one of the most exploited continents so it really pleased to be doing this episode to talk about the neoliberalism and imperialism in Latin America and also show the resistance from the people in there so could you talk about this violence in Colombia and the killing of social activists why why is that happening in the current period um the killing of social activists has greatly accelerated and this is merely due to the reason that capitalism is in a crisis and it needs to accumulate more wealth and capital accumulation can only be advanced when people are not resisting it but in colombia we have people who are resisting consciously resisting capital accumulation and uh, i think approximately 1000 leaders have been killed in the country since 2016 and the current president ivan duque marquez uh, he is extremely neoliberal in his ideological leanings and since he came to power in 2018 more than 500 and uh, more than 500 social activists have been killed and 85 ex uh, far guerrillas have also been killed and this violence is due singularly caused by capital accumulation because corporations can't operate in an environment where class struggle is taking place where class struggle is amplified and that is why violence is taking place vain mm-hmm. any thoughts there yeah absolutely that makes um, that definitely makes sense you know that's why you should perpetually um amplify class struggle um everywhere you can and you know it's yeah like you said it's no accident that you know the um increased violence is taking place just when you know capitalism is at a crisis right these two things are not coincidental um you know capitalism requires perpetual new markets to exploit or greater exploitation of existing markets and especially with the pandemic and everything you know capitalism is experiencing its biggest crisis since you know at least 2008 so um the you know increased violence in you know Latin America company, countries or you know uh, and places like colombia is uh, definitely not coincidental yeah and and just to make put this in black and white terms the people aren't simply fighting against the governments who are trying to build infrastructure and trying to build roads and trying to make the place better what they're doing is they've used 
the consolidation of capital accumulation through the use of their violence against the people, be it paramilitary groups, be it using the state and the police to oppress the people and the protesters and the guerrillas who are actively inhibiting the ability for external foreign corporations to to come into Colombia and exploit the resources, the minerals, you know, probably destroy the water, the communities, everything that makes Colombia <laughs> Colombia for the people is is being turned into a flipping US colony essentially if you if you want to put it that way or or at least another source of income for the United States. it is essentially a new colony for the american empire because it is a peripheral country which is exporting its commodities to the us yes so you know over in industrialized nations and western nations the workers are all trying to band together to improve the conditions of their workplace karl marx himself is saying the workers are in chains like this is how bad it is to be a worker for a capitalist to be exploited from your surplus labor and to make them rich and fat and live amazing incredible lives that we can't even imagine because they're just living life that good so if we as workers are pissed off and frustrated and and feel exploited in the most richest nations in world then we really have to consider the reality for the poor and the oppressed in latin american nations who they're not just working for companies who give them holidays and you know you are able to an extent to buy a house and to do all of these other things you're still exploited but our lives are so much better in the west i just want to really drive home the being a worker in a western nation and feeling exploited is nothing compared to having no option because your community you know schools houses your old workplace are absolutely gone in order to build us or western businesses you know it it's it's hard to imagine the extent of of exploitation and and, it, and i guess that if you were one of those people and you're seeing all of this coming to your country and all these mm, you know luxuries that you're producing going out to the united states to the uk wherever in the hands of ruling class capitalists then you're going to feel literally not like a worker but like a slave like an actual colonized person and that's how these people are seen that's why racism's important because people can just think fuck it they're just brown people who cares about them let them this is the purpose of neoliberalism as well to modernize imperialism in a sense is that a fair shout neoliberalism is certainly the intensification of imperialism because uh, this ideology emerged out of a crisis of capitalism and whenever a crisis comes capitalism becomes more predatory in its behavior so yes neoliberalism certainly the extension over extension of imperialism okay so wasn't the a peace agreement in colombia in t- in 2016 why why is there still all this violence to force people to work how's that happening what's the situation there the the peace agreement was i think i term it as a passive revolution and the term passive revolution was coined by antonio gramsci and a passive revolution is characterized by two major features firstly it is a ruling class counter movement that uh, marks significant but limited changes and 
it is it guarantees the stability of fundamental relations of domination and secondly it also acts in acts as an antidote to revolutionary fervor from below um and this fervor is insufficient that is why the ruling class is able to block it and when we analyze the 2016 colombian peace agreement in light of this framework of passive revolution important conclusions can be drawn so firstly the peace agreement surely um constructed new structures of hope uh, and stable existence um and it thus instituted major political cultural changes while the agreement did disseminate the aspirations of peace it prevented them from realizing uh, in the form of concrete policies in fact the peace agreement has increased the intensity of the ferial forces of neoliberalism and extractive capital with the farc left drastically debilitated extractive capital has reinitiated an extremely predatory program of extractivism and there has been a rise in mining output and mining output certainly means the further exploitation of workers and indigenous people so coal production for example has increased and gold mining has also witnessed an amazing resurgence emeralds and fdi in colombia has also increased in uh, in 2019 uh, i think it was more than 10 sorry it was plus 4 billion dollar i think and 32% of the investment has gone to the oil and mining industry and oil and mining industries in colombia are extremely exploitative so there has been an amplification of existential wretchedness for the working class in colombia the uh, violent rejection of redistributive reforms has been led by ivan duque marquez who has instituted neoliberalism at gunpoint and he and he initially promised that he would guarantee a collaborationist sort of pact between the peasants and the landlords but what we have seen instead is the intensification of an agro export rural economy uh, which has obviously meant the exploitation of the workers so from this it is evident that the peace agreement only served to politically stabilize colombia to defend the resistance movement which was being led by the farc and this has led to capitalist stabilization and secondly the peace agreement came as a response to military stalemate where the guerrillas had been forced to negotiate with the state due to insufficient but significant subaltern pressure through a us aided counter insurgency war the colombian state was able to bring the guerrillas struggle to a military deadlock the colombian state was able to professionalize the army improve intelligence gathering adopt a more proactive mobile and offensive military strategy and strengthen the air force capacity for night combat thus militarily overpowering the guerrillas as farc ep's combative capacity was gradually weakened it was forced to enter into negotiations but while its military organization proved to be insufficient its ideological appeal among the oppressed masses has proved to be substantial and this is due to the simple fact that support for these armed fighters emerges from rural terror and the endless killings of social activists and not from narco trafficking and forced recruitment which have been peddled by the uh, media owned by the ruling class excellent points there incredibly well said we will move on to far 
rest in power to all those that have fought and died for a better society for their own people. But what I got out of that was when you're talking about, you know, FARC being fooled, essentially, by a peace agreement. I think of the IRA, who also got fooled by the British government into signing some kind of peace form, and consequently, they were politically defanged, and they were essentially, you know, shut down after that point. But they were forced to sign this this peace agreement with the UK, you know, as far as I know, I could be wrong, but I think I'm, I'm right, because obviously there was a lot of pressure towards them to make an agreement with with the British government. They got scammed, essentially. And when I think of these things and when it comes down to, like, Latin America and then these people who were probably being peasants the whole entire lives, you know, this is why education is so important. It was Che Guevara who said, a country that does not how to read or write is easy to deceive. And this is what... (laughs) English people have historically done their whole entire times. I mean, anybody knows it better. It's probably your people from when, you know, the English have gone over. What they do is they they try to have a detached aggression over their exploitation and they justify everything they do in words, in contracts, in laws. And that's why you can legally go to war you can get it passed at the the un and the other poorer country is like what the hell's going on and they're like well you can't read all of this law this legal business therefore you know you can't participate in the same intellectual warfare so you're just going to be a victim of the physical warfare and that's that's kind of what what i'm seeing here is like every time you're forced to negotiate with somebody who's literally and legally in a better position than you you're not gonna win through through literacy or legal means and that's how the ruling class like it that's what justifies imperialism that's what justifies war that's what justifies embargoes that's what justifies you you know so much insanity and and legitimizes capitalism imperialism neoliberalism you are absolutely correct, I think. And another additional reason why the working class has not succeeded in Colombia is because of the fact that the level of violence in that country is extremely high. In other countries in that continent, we have not seen such high levels of violence. In Colombia, what we have seen is well-organized and fun- uh, extremely well-funded violence. That is why the... Uh, the network of civil society there has not has not been able to defeat the ruling class. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to finish off on this point. But regarding, I mean, for example, if you're toiling away in an iron mine in Africa, wherever, you don't know English, you're thinking, why the hell am I doing this now? It's because somebody over there in, in the United States or London is in a stock exchange using their their numbers and their words to facilitate this exploitation it's it's insane um you, you cannot cover up the destitute exploitation that capitalism or so-called democracy imposes around the world you simply well i mean but anyway i'm pissed off just talking about it but the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the People's Army, could possibly re-emerge. So you talked about FARC before. Could 
could we talk about them a little bit more maybe about their re-emergence so are we going to see them in the future hopefully and you know maybe a bit a bit about their history how did they come about and what is their ideology their political philosophy uh, the FARC originated from PCC that is the Colombian Communist Party the PCC was accredited in 1930 I think and was radically different from the two dominant political ideologies followed by conservatives and liberals and the PCC advocated for the formation of peasant republics and self-defense communities oriented towards the construction of alternative societies and it simultaneously called for the building of peasant leagues in the rural regions and popular fronts of political mobilization in the urban re- urban areas and FARC has also followed this strategy. This was an early effort to build cross-geographical class solidarities and expand communist ideology to different areas. And from the 1920s onward, the party began supporting rural militancy in response to landholder-sanctioned violence and blood-tainted capital accumulation. And it did a variety of activities, for example, organizing seizures of land, strikes, protests, and it also established self-defense groups in the rural regions. This was an extremely important step. And the PCC's membership was predominantly rural, and it was uh, majorly identified as a peasant party. And being a militant rural party, it involved itself immediately in the struggles over Indian communal lands, the rights of tenant farmers in public land claims. All this was part of a fundamental process of reconstituting the society. And the PCC never lost a view of its strategic objective, that is socialism. Spark emerged out of the rural militancy of PCC uh, in May 1964, as traditional channels of opposition were abruptly closed by the ruling elites. Between 1948 and 1958, Colombia was the scene of one of the most intense and grisly instances of widespread violence in the 20th century. In this period, there was a civil war quite simply called the violence between liberal and conservative parties, which took 200,000 lives. In order to bring an end to this civil war, the conservatives and liberals made a political pact in 1958, uh, also known as the National Front, which established that the presidency would alternate between two between the two parties for a period of 16 years, and all positions in the administration would be distributed evenly between them. It was between conservatives and liberals. Uh, so the National Front barred the PCC from conventional political processes in 1959 and it essentially established a two-party state and it helped in the alternation of power between aligned sections of the Colombian conservative and liberal elite while strengthening the Colombian armed forces to suppress popular reforms. After this civil war, as it was expected, capital accumulation consolidated, agribusiness interests grew stronger and land concentration increased. Despite rising violence and growing dominance of capitalism, PCC continued to organize peasant self-defense collectives to fight against the exploitative social relations. It solidly organized defense-based peasant collectives which attempted to materially support the construction of communist communities. And in these communities, uh, the party applied mechanisms of collective decision-making. And the basic idea behind this was to guarantee a minimum level of objective security to implement radical measures. As a direct result of their effectiveness, these communities were seen as a threat to the existing order and 
conservative party senators termed those areas as independent republics adhering to politics from ussr consequently a plan of aggression against these zones began to be elaborated which would involve direct military action and it took place on 27 may 1964 with an operation named operation markutalia this was actually a series of us supported military operations carried out by the colombian state consisting of aerial bombardments in a 20000 ground troop offensive against the settlements constructed there uh, and the colombian air and armed forces utilized us supplied napalm during the campaign to destroy the marquetalia valley and a military attack was also planned aimed at the killing of the pcc leader manuel merulanda velez Uh, but Merulanda survived, and the entire community of four thousand in Marquetalia was able to flee due to the excellent organizational preparation done by the guerrillas. With the attack on Marquetalia, Merulanda realized that there was no other option than a comprehensive and revolutionary armed struggle aimed at ensuring material conditions for a future negation of capitalism. And as a part of this initiative to counteract the coercive capacity of capitalism. park was formed in 1964 after experiencing severe violence from imperialists and the colombian state and it was officially recognized as a guerrilla movement during the 10th congress of pcc thank you so much for that well, what i got out of that was some of the most widespread violence in the 20th century i think one of the most important points that we should get out of that is it was the conservatives and the liberals fighting amongst themselves of course this civil war so what you looking at is a complete lack of resources causes even the capitalists the liberals and the conservatives to be that desperate that they fight each other for whatever resources imperialists have left behind in colombia and of course this leads to fascism that leads to blaming one certain group it's their fault it's their fault rather than looking up at the class enemy and you know i think a lot of people who see this they, they don't know a lot about colombia what do most people know about it well there's a lot of narco trafficking there's a lot of drugs you see vice documentaries about people just you know turning to making drugs and all that uh, i mean it's no surprise when so much of everything in your country is is being extracted of course you're going to turn to whatever means to try and make some goddamn money but this is uh, again like what the united states wanted this is literally where the cia got their drugs from so that they could pour it into black communities and poor communities and they're probably doing this to this very day if you consider what the capitalists the liberals the conservatives are doing when their resources are scarce then you really do have to consider what the communists are doing as an alternative the communists literally said as you said that they tend to an armed struggle they realized that they had to turn to an armed struggle in order to ensure the material conditions in their society for their people for their family their future generations they had to fight for it so liberals are fighting against each other like goddamn idiot fascists but the communists are fighting for progress for the future is it growing did it start small and then go large or did it just immediately pop up what happened how did it grow originally they started as a group of 50 fighters so it was that small and they grew to such a large organization because of the work they did did there their work consisted of socially embedded guerrilla warfare and by socially embedded i mean one which struggles in conjunction with the people 
firstly the guerrillas foregrounded the highly unequal rural political economy in which the majority of the rural people are agricultural laborers or precarious owners of extremely small plots and that too facing the threat of displacement by rich agro export farmers and we should note that displacement in colombia is a large scale phenomena and it is estimated that displaced farmers were forced to abandon approximately 10 million hectares of land in addition to small scale subsistence farmers coca leros or coca farmers represent another section of oppressed people who were mobilized by the guerrillas and were consistently exploited by drug traffickers and assaulted by paramilitaries financed by narco dollars many a times these farmers are coerced many a times small scale farmers are coerced into cultivating coca by nexus of drug traffickers and paramilitaries and testimonies from various departments have um, made this fact clear by combating paramilitary violence and instituting social welfare projects farc was able to gain a foothold in the rural regions of colombia its daily activities made them social actors who could intervene in the civic strikes help the campesinos and campesinos means peasants and magnify the impact of marches by organizing them to stay mobilized mobilized for months at a time by lending the support to movements farc strengthened their negotiating capacity in relation to the state on top of providing logistical support uh, the guerrillas have also helped in uh, combating parainstitutional violence and stabilizing the lives of coca farmers instead of drug traffickers the farc instead of being drug traffickers the farc regulates the trade for benefit of growers so all talk that they are narco traffickers and they use it for their own self enrichment is false it is propaganda they control the trade in the coca paste in the region that and that's for a reason if they didn't do that control the paramilitaries would come into the coca growing territory to buy the paste and the peasants would face a bigger threat because paramilitaries don't care if they have to kill to steal the product the farc therefore utilizes its mobile warfare strategy and marxist leninist ideological unity to resist the onslaught of paramilitaries narco bourgeois and guarantee a minimal level of security to coca growers uh, this uh, combative capacity has allowed it to resist uh, paramilitary violence and it was decided that uh, the combative capacity of the guerrillas would be developed at the 7th conference of the guerrilla movement when farc declared itself as a people's army this new method meant that farc would no longer wait in ambush for the enemy it would locate and surround them uh, so this was an important transition of guerrillas from a defensive organization to a revolutionary offensive movement geared towards more offensive military operations and farc ep's activities are not restricted to coca growers and they also include the installment of social welfare projects among small scale subsistence farmers this is a part of the overall uh, direction of farc which emphasizes the construction of a substitute state through the bottom up building of insurgent institutions so this is a power, dual power strategy which we have seen elsewhere instead of seizing just uh, central apparatuses of the state farc ep guerrillas have deconstructed state power at regional levels moved upwards through molecular changes and filled the hegemonic void left by the state therefore in regions where the farc ep has maintained stable control and where the national government never had a presence the rebels functioned as a de facto government implanting redistributive projects and the social welfare activities include education health and various other types of support 
ऑर्गेनाइजेशन It contains two crossed uh, rifles and an open book on top of a map of Colombia, and this designates the uh, interlacing of pedagogy with the revolutionary struggle. And the guerrilla organization has built many cultural centers where both civilians and FARC members work as instructors. In these centers, courses are offered in a variety of subjects. And while the buildings are surely primitive in structure, the educational material is not. uh the armed organization has carried out educational and skill raising works outside these cultural centers also and it has taught children a variety of skills and these are not small activities let's not ridicule them uh, like uh, uh the anti communist they greatly contribute to an upward molecular movement of hegemony excellent thank you so much Ryan, have you got somebody who competes with your love for the MPA? You know, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, we should all be, you know, um, supporting armed movements that are, you know, engaged in any type of armed struggle against, um, especially uh, neoliberalism or just, you know, imperialism generally. And you know, ultimately, I think it's going to be getting worse in the coming years. to come ultimately um you know we said before that you know capitalism is experiencing its worst crisis in a very long time and um because of that it's going to be looking to you know expand its its violence abroad there's there's no doubt about that but also you know even with the impending um threat of you know global warming i think the bourgeoisie understand that they're sort of unlimited extraction of things like you know oil and gas eventually has to come to a close so i think they're going to sort of ramp up to try and get you know one last um grab at the at the gold there i think they're going to just sort of go for broke and try and grab everything they can which is going to you know increase contradictions and it's going to increase um armed struggles in those countries ultimately and it's you know it's global it's not just colombia um you, we saw it you know recently in the uh, attempted coup in venezuela for uh, in bolivia sorry for bolivian uh, lithium for um you know the rare earth minerals that go into making you know electronics phones and things like that so yeah it it's not going to come to a close soon i don't think unfortunately i think you know as the contradictions of capitalism heighten both domestically and abroad um yeah violence is uh, definitely gonna gonna increase mm, yeah what i got out of what you said janis was it fark essentially sees the means of production when it comes to you know making what is it the cocoa the drugs the drug production the drug trafficking fark sees that means of production but they don't in order to as you say resist paramilitary violence exploitation of the workers and you know we all work jobs that are stupid we shouldn't be doing them the destructive people work jobs producing all kinds of firearms in, in industrial nations they produce you know nuclear bombs we produce all kinds of aerosols poisons everything all kinds of madness that's what we produce 
and we still feel heavily exploited by capitalists. We have unions in a lot of cases that make sure that we're not being oppressed, that nobody's talking down to us, that our feelings are protected. But we really do have to do this extreme distinction between us in wealthy nations to the the peasants on the ground in Colombia or anywhere else where this is extremely compatible and just look throughout Latin America, Africa, the Middle East. They don't have unions. They have people who literally fight for the people who produce social welfare products, dual power, as you said, education so that the people, again, can never be deceived by any white man, by any ruling class person. And also reading, writing is important to articulate your thoughts better to other people. You all probably think and feel the same, but if you haven't got the words to describe that, you can never get the flipping, the oxytocin in your brain that's developed through the trust and understanding with another human being so that you're able to work with more people and produce a better reality together. And that's what it, it, it all comes down to. It's being there for the people. So we're not just seeing FARC go out with a load of guns to start shooting. You know, they're not all about just the warfare. They're, they're literally there to protect the people and, and advance, I guess, in like a kind of vanguard way, the needs and the wants for the people within the territories that they do you know, hold. But with that being said, can I ask you, where did FARC get this kind of strategy from? Is it from previous revolutionaries? Is it from previous movements? Are they making some of it up as they go along? I think um, FARC have adopted a Foucault theory and it is pretty much similar to uh, Vietnam. Obviously, the uh, situations are not the same. History changes, but... uh, in a more broad sense, I think it is the same. Uh, sorry, not focal theory, uh, protracted people's war, I forgot. So uh, by following this uh, theory, they have done so much work. While outlining his uh, focal theory, uh, Che Guevara had said that uh, conditions for revolution can't be created by guerrilla activity alone. And therefore, uh, people or the armed fighters are both the product of material conditions and the creator of new conditions. While uh, Guevara did believe that uh, some conditions were necessary for uh, a guerrilla struggle, he, I think, a bit de-emphasized the role of uh, social work in propelling the armed struggle. And FARC has uh, rectified this mistake by maintaining a model uh, in which local power is accumulated through the establishment of broad support over long periods of time. It believes that careful, meticulous revolutionary work in the form of social welfare, for instance, is an absolute prerequisite for a socially embedded warfare. FARC's organizational work, therefore, has involved building a counter-state within the state, establishing fronts of war wherein armed action and disrupt state and mobilize guerrilla units uh, and exploit opportunities as the state tries to deal with local disruption. So there were two objectives of demoralizing the military forces through a constant succession of blows and of delegitimizing the state by showing its inability to provide even a minimum of local security. Boss, thank you for the answer. Yeah, protesting the people's war once again seems to be shown as that that's 
where all of us have to <laughs> advance to. But as you said, revolution is not brought on just by guerrilla warfare alone. The social work is important to advance the class struggle. Organisers in imperialist nations, we go out there and you're like talking to the people. Some people give face masks out. Some people do food bank donations. Some people are always trying to find like, you know, mutual aid to connect to other human beings and carefully meticulous work as you said to show the people that another world is possible because people in obviously capitalist nations have got that capitalist realism in the mind they don't even comprehend that there's people out there who aren't all individuals and they can instead be socially orientated so these actions are there's mutual aid support you know, get providing food for the poor, that literally blows people's minds. And it's like, well, this person who is probably on, you know, a, a measly like 11 grand a year can afford to squeeze in, you know, with this support for me. So why isn't my country that's on 111 trillion pounds a year, why can't they do this? And when you're in an imperialist, like, victim nation, such as Colombia, the people are out there with imperialist realism in their minds. They expect this love, this generosity, this support, even less than people in capitalist nations because of how impoverished they are. It's definitely important to literally, physically fight. I'm going to take this now, yeah, and then turn it revolutionary, countercultural hegemony. We have to go out there and we have to fight for the hearts and the minds. So, yeah, all of this sounds extremely exhausting. <laughs> a a fuck starting to feel exhausted, you know, the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia. Did he get tired? Are they going to have to eventually be forced to retreat from burnout, from fatigue? Have they got limited resources? Or are they going to continue to grow stronger, do you think? A dissident faction of FARC has announced that it will rearm itself and continue the armed struggle, but the majority of the FARC doesn't believe so. And I think after the peace agreement, it will be difficult for them uh, because their uh, weapons have been uh, seized by the state as part of the agreement. And um, the violence of the Colombian state is continuously increasing. And here I would like to just uh, highlight the role played by USA um, in violently repressing the FARC. Uh, and this started in 2000s uh, through Plan Colombia, which is a $10 billion US aid program, not an aid program, but counter-revolutionary strategy. Uh, USA privatized violence and allowed Colombia to install an asymmetrical operational architecture of warfare. With the privatization of violence, various security companies like Lockheed Martin and Integrated Aerosystems, they started operating on the Colombian soil and they helped in specializing violence to defeat the guerrillas. The mag military magnitude of these private companies is indicated by the fact that in 2005, there were more than 600 private military contractors on the Colombian soil engaged in a class warfare against the guerrillas. And there has also taken place the institution of a system of asymmetric warfare, which would use new tactics to defeat the guerrillas. And the preparation of this type of 
Uh, warfare was greatly aided by USA, which integrated the operations and intelligence sharing of the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and sent advisors, monitors, and military personnel to Colombia to oversee the process and properly implement it. Uh, through this US-assisted modernization of the Army, the Colombian government was able to kill three key leaders of FARC, uh, namely Roll Race through Operation Phoenix, and then Mono Jojoy. Uh, he was second in command to Alfonso Cano, the top military commander, and Alfonso Cano too got killed in a gun battle. All this was part of the strategy to reduce the FARC guerrillas by 50% in just two years. Uh, Marty Dempsey, a retired United States Army general, had said back then in 2012 that the US will send to Colombia brigade commanders with experience in Afghanistan and Iraq to work with the Colombian police and army combat units that will be deployed in areas controlled by the rebels. These brigade commanders would work with already existing special commando units for hunt and kill missions as part of an aggressive military campaign to reduce the guerrillas by 50%. Uh, so you you can just gauge the extent of violence which was uh, oper- uh, which was being implemented by the U.S. and paramilitaries quickened the military weakening of FARC by establishing the everydayness of violence. By everydayness, I mean the regularization of violence. While state-supported military attacks on FARC encampments are extremely effective, paramilitaries help in the solidification of this culture of violence through a decentralized network of micro-aggressions, they create an all-pervasive atmosphere of slow violence, which constantly destabilizes FARC's organizational structures. Slow or perpetual violence is achieved through hit-and-run tactics, ambushes, and sabotage, which FARC itself utilized in its counter-hegemonic fight against capitalism. And the Colombian state has been extremely hypocritical about paramilitaries. Despite the demobilization of paramilitaries in 2006, various paramilitary organizations have continued to exist, marauding through the country and killing people. Um, From 2006 to 2007, there was a humongous increase in displacement. Uh, And from 2007 to 2008, uh, this trend continued. Uh, And this was all due to the paramilitary activities. Um, So... For the last four years, let's just say, like, since the Trump administration, I imagine that since the ceasefire, even though there has been an official ceasefire, contradictions have been getting worse there, I imagine, haven't they? Yes, they have been obviously getting worse because uh, the peace agreement did not lead to a stable period of even class collaboration. It has led to a one-sided consolidation of the ruling class. And this can be indicated by the fact that uh, FDI has increased and uh, the free trade agreements, the conditions of the free trade agreements have uh, got aggravated, which means that uh, workers now get lower wages and all that thing. And another important thing has been um, police brutality, which has emerged in conjunction with uh, US's crisis of police brutality. And this also indicates that there has been no alleviation of uh, ex- uh, of existential wretchedness for the workers. Yeah, right. So you said earlier that, like, um, since the peace agreement, you know, some FARC members are still going to carry out, you know, armed struggle, but most aren't. Um, why is that? I mean, if things are continually getting worse, 
then shouldn't you know the the armed response get more also yes armed response should get, getting more but uh, the major faction of the uh, farc organization has believed has now started believing that an electoral solution to uh, capitalism is possible and this is also due to the fact that uh, gustavo petro a uh, leftist candidate in the elections has been garnering a good amount of vote um, but i think that this um, conviction in electoral means to socialism is misplaced and this is due to the fact uh, that paramilitaries will continue to disrupt any movement which is being made towards uh, that uh, direction yeah i have to completely agree that electoralism to head towards socialism is is a misplaced <laughs> thought but If I was in Labour and then I ended up as Labour's leader, then I would believe that electoralism has a place for revolution, but they're never going to let me or any other revolutionary in the position in order to have the the power that you know Labour officials or Tories have. They're, they're never going to let it happen. So when we see somebody who's literally fighting, dying for FARC for the freedom against neoliberalism in Colombia and then we see FARC maybe majority or minority head towards electoralism what future is there for the left in Colombia what options have they got is FARC their only route or if they got other other things that they try the future of the colombian left to me seems optimistic because objective conditions are already foregrounding the fact that without any material policies the guarantees of the peace agreement will just be like hollow words without any concrete content as a growing realization of the need to create a true peace dawns upon the colombian working class class struggle will intensify and the political prospects for the left will likely improve but the major problem here is the ideological unity of the farc because now they are split over the method through which they will attain socialism and farc has had an experience of electoralism because between 1984 and 1988 the farc agreed to a ceasefire with the betanco regime and many of its militants opted for electoral politics by forming a mass based political party called the patriotic union in all the patriotic Un- union or the up gained 12 elected congressional members and uh, 21 representatives to departmental assemblies before during and after scoring these substantial electoral victories in local state and national elections the military backed death squads murdered three of the patriotic union's presidential candidates over 5000 legal electoral activists were killed the farc ep was then forced to return to armed opposition because of colombian regime's um, mass terrorism and i think this time also we may see that the guerrillas will be forced to take up arms yeah i mean just trying to imagine the futures never easy but we've clearly done your research for the past so we can kind of make a, a somewhat reasonable estimation of of where the future is going to go so we've talked a lot about you know fighting in farc but what's the role of women in farc are they active on the front lines what kind of role do women have in farc is it overt or covert is it a bit of both 50% of uh, farc members are female and 30 to 55% of commandants are also women 
the percentage of women in the central Colombian government is on average 10%, while municipal levels average 5%. Only 2% of soldiers on average are female, while the FARC-EP has a one-to-one sex ratio. So this indicates that the FARC-EP is much more progressive when it comes to the role of women. And the high percentage of women in the armed group is also explained by the fact that women see in the FARC an organization that represents their class interests and that will contribute to finding solutions to their serious problems. While the work they do as a member of the FARC is dangerous, their membership to this group offers them protection from daily violence. The FARC has decreed a zero-tolerance policy against rape with the punishment of this offense being death to the perpetrator and this law protects them from both uh, sexual violence by their comrades and that carried out by other groups against peasant women. And their membership also permits them sexual freedom. While relationship must be approved by a commander to both begin and end, permission is uh, rarely withheld. Uh, and it is highly probable that 80% of the women in the guerrilla group have been suffering misfortunate socio-economic circumstances as they are from a peasant group. Uh, apart from socio-economic issues, FARC has been highlighting women's issues concerning domestic violence, homicide and sexual violence, for example, through spreading pamphlets with statistics to the public. And they have been successful in pointing out the flaws in the Colombian government and society of social equality concerning job opportunities, limited education and ethno-racial grievances. Yeah, thank you. That's so interesting. I'm really happy to hear so many of them actually in command positions because I do think that women make in, incredible leaders. You know, a, a lot of the work colleagues that I've had and managers who are female generally have been like some of my favourite. You know, it's a different dynamic than when you've got a, a male who's been brought up to be, you know, somewhat machismoistic and have some kind of hyper ego. I think obviously. Not, not that females are like more feminine and softer and, you know, more delicate and, and all of that. And I think that it makes it easier for them to express the love and support whilst not being worried about their social validation for others. That might not be a factor, but that, that's just a little antidote I wanted to throw in from my experience and in order to support them in the command roles. We talk about exploitation workers being exploited and then those in imperialist nations being even more hyper-exploited than us workers who feel like we need to break our change yesterday. Well, we have women as well. Women are, are more oppressed than males. So not only have you got the workers and the peasants being oppressed, but then you've got the worker women being even more oppressed, as you said, being raped, you know, being exploited. And then you're going to have the disabled, you're going to have the gays all being even more expressed on top of all of this. It's definitely important to look at the minorities, I don't know what you call them, and just the most exploited in societies. I'm really grateful that you had an answer to that regarding the role of women in FARC. We do have a, a lot of female supporters. I really hope that this serves as inspiration and encouragement that... By the sound of it, they seem to do all of this revolutionary shit equally as good, if not better, than the male counterparts. Okay, so what we're probably going to see in the next year or two, if intensification of FARC or these protests and the workers or the people just 
stopping US corporations coming in to stop this exploitation. We're probably going to see on the news that Colombia's poor. <laughs> they've got a hunger pandemic. They've got bread lines. Nobody's being fed. What's going on? We're probably going to hear about a hunger pandemic. We hear about an ongoing hunger pandemic in Colombia now that's said to be caused by export-orientated agro-industrialization. Could you talk about what that means and what you expect to see or how this will be reported in bourgeois news outlets? Yes, in Colombia we have a highly exploitative rural economy um, which has adversely impacted the peasants. And beginning from 1991, President Cesar Gaviria unleashed a, unleashed a policy package which attempted to capitalistically crack the Colombian economy through neoliberal measures. And these measures have included the collapse of social safety net, uh, the pursuit of an export-oriented economic policy, and efforts to attract foreign direct investment (FDI). This this policy paradigm has. Uh, signaled an agrarian age where crops for domestic consumption uh, are, were replaced by export-oriented crops such as palm oil, fruit, and sugar cane. This means that the opening up of Colombia deepened the insertion of the country's agriculture into world markets as a supplier of commodity crops and a net food importer. The cultivation of agro-export crops uh, has led to food insecurity. And uh, we will see how it has led to this. In addition to uh, coke and palm oil, we have a rentier agrarian economy, which has engendered a shift from production to speculation and land use. Through a strategy of accumulation by dispossession, the system of sharecropping, uh, subsistence farming, and smallholder farming was slowly um, overtaken by a new system of uh, uh, rentier speculative land system. And the proletarianization and dispossession of small farmers had included the dismantling of indigenous lands. Instead of using the appropriated lands for productive activities such as agricultural food production, which is extremely needed, the Colombian capitalist class has used it for speculative purposes because we are now living in the financial age of capitalism, uh, the monopoly finance capitalism, which we have now. So in order to avoid taxation and legal prosecution for underusing or keeping the land idle, capitalists have adopted cattle ranching to just hide what they have been doing. Along with the traditional land oligarchy, which has been engaged in speculation and land concentration, the narco-bourgeois is another major player in this rentier agrarian economy. And it has actually strengthened it. The narco-bourgeois has found rural lands as a convenient method to transform its illegally gained money into land holdings and incorporate it into formal land markets through the acquisition of titles. And the unenforcement un of rural property rights ha has made it more lucrative. Through the combined effects of rentier economy and export-oriented agribusiness crop production, Colombia has witnessed the emergence of food, secure, food, in, food insecurity. Food insecurity in Colombia is closely related to the violent processes of displacement and compassionate resistance, wherein displaced uh, farmers are exploited by MNCs, agribusiness companies, and narco-traffickers. All these processes of capital accumulation have contributed to the impoverishment and displacement of Colombians, thus greatly increasing their food insecurity. And finally, we have uh, free trade agreements, which form another component of the 
agricultural landscape which we have in Colombia. Uh, through these uh, FTAs, countries like USA and Canada have coerced Colombia into dismantling its Andean price band system and quota administration mechanism, which guaranteed the purchase of crops. And through this, they have uh, flooded the domestic market with uh, export products such as rice, corn, wheat, and uh, other, which are price, uh, which are priced extremely high, and they are not, uh, and they cannot be purchased by Colombians whose purchasing capacity is already going down. So this was the way in which food insecurity or hunger pandemic is uh, coming about in Colombia. Wow. Um. I mean, if anything epitomizes imperialism it is that you actually started that talking about finance capitalism and what does the world bank do what does the imf do if not impose finance capitalism on nations around the world so not only will the imf give entire countries loans that they're never going to be able to pay back and the people are going to have to just pay for it for the rest of their lives but yes it, it does sound like the actual individual capitalists on the ground in Colombia. When we talk about workers having to sell their labor to capitalists in order to make their money, a capitalist, of course, has to exploit workers in order to make their money. But these capitalists, again, are often in hundreds of thousands of, uh, or, you know, millions of pounds, dollars worth of debt themselves. So not to feel sorry for them, but just to look at the contradictions here, we're looking at the people, the masses, and the capitalist, it doesn't matter who you are in that country, you're being exploited by finance capitalism, by the IMF, by the World Bank, by the United States and British ruling class people. It's that simple. Also, just to understand that, you know, fiscal policy from things like the IMF are political weapons, right? Like this is something that's often missed by people. Definitely. They don't really see it that way, but like the imposition of sanctions, fiscal policy, monetary policy on, you know, countries in the global South, they are ultimately political weapons, right? It really brings home that um, saying, you know, politics is just the continuation of war through other means, right? Like all of these political bodies, the IMF, the World Bank, etc. They are, you know, political institutions that are enacting uh, fiscal war on, on other countries, as no doubt. Yeah, so these ruling class men or these people in Colombia, for example, um, who end up ruling class capitalists, I mean, all they are are puppets for the Western capitalists. They're essentially being hired as tyrants or dictators as they like to call other actual communists but these are, are actual tyrants and dictators in order to make sure that the united states the imf unable to make a return on their investment really interesting point that you made was the food insecurity that comes from this because the rice and the wheat cannot be purchased by people in colombia i mean it's going elsewhere, isn't it? It's going, it's going around the world in order to be made into cereals for us in our homes so that we can have it with our milk before we go to work. That's essentially what's going to happen to this rice and wheat. And the fact that, that the people in Colombia can't even buy this themselves because they're so impoverished and they're so displaced by, by industry, they're literally forced off the land by this industry. The amount of... <laughs> 
the catalysm of of being poor and then being kicked off your land so you become even more impoverished and you can buy even less food that creates you know food insecurity malnutrition and death this is what's going on people this is imperialism and we can talk about materials coming out of that country all day long but it starts with food that should be our number one priority to, to protect these people from and so yeah if we do see this on the news and we see our oh, colombia you know people are starving why why would the u.s companies be there if this was a poor shithole country why would they be there they wouldn't you know it's true all of these latin american countries all these so-called poor countries that you can think of in your head if you're liberal are extremely wealthy they're extremely rich they have vast abundances or the us aren't going to be there they're not going to have death swords going about so that they can extract these resources these aren't poor nations yet the people are living in extreme poverty until they die this is what we're talking about when, when it's imperialism, neoliberalism, whatever it is. This is literally the basics. And no matter what country you look at, when the victims of imperialism, you're going to see the exact same things again and again and again. And you can look back 50 years, 100 years, you'll see the exact same thing. How is it going to be like this in 50 years, in 100 years in the future? We don't know. We know that it's up to us. And we've got the luxury of looking at FARC and, and looking at Colombia and seeing how they fight the bourgeoisie and the capitalists of their land to, to reclaim it and then actually be there for, for the community and to protect the community from tyrants. So this is a luxury. This is a luxury that we get to talk about what they suffer with every single day. And this is what I want to dive on because this isn't just a fucking podcast, people. This is really what's happening. We're telling you to be agitated. We're telling you to be disgusted. And we're telling you to do everything you can to spread this information with other people. You need to be angry. People are dying. People are dying. And the... They're living precarious existences. They're being tortured. They're, they're starving in ways that we can't even imagine. You know, and again, lash out at any single so-called communist who you see out there who is not anti-imperialist. Because when you look towards socialism in your country, but you're not looking on ending imperialism in, in other countries, your country, your existence, your nation is still at the back of, of this Colombia, for example. And Colombia is just, you know, it, it's a weird for a territory that was drawn on a map one day but that's got millions of people in there that's got millions of people who have contributed to our human existence in ways that we can't even imagine we could have had cereal loads of times we could have had loads of bread that's that's been made from this wheat that they're toiling over that they're suffering over and they're probably dying over because they simply aren't getting the calories needed to replenish what was left in order to produce it for the capitalists to be sold on we need to be angry, people. That's my point. I, I, I can't just talk about this without at least trying to get people angry. So we've spoken about armed resistance. We've spoken about, you know, clashes and civil war. And, and we've talked about a possible, you know, way forward for the left in Colombia. But again, if anybody wants to research these topics further, Yanis has got incredible articles that we're going to link into the show notes. I'm sure that when people do look into Colombia a bit more, or, I mean, you could probably search it right now, you're probably going to see somebody being abused, brutalised, victimised by police brutality in these countries. 
obviously the police serve the state as their extended fist to crack down on anybody who opposes the state and the state is a neoliberal state so of course people are going to oppose it of course you will see images of police brutality come out of Colombia, Latin America, you know, just look at Iraq, people are being shot in the heads by beanbags and it's just the beanbags implanted in the face. You know what I'm saying? This is what people are really looking at with police brutality in the United States. Yes, yous are being shot by the police, but for God damn it, yous have got firearms in like millions or billions of firearms in your country. You're out there with like six weapons in your house doing absolutely nothing. These people have nothing and they're still fighting. So can we finish up on talking about how the state is going to protect itself with the police and imperialism in general, please? Absolutely. So I will just recount one event which occurred in Colombia and which is extremely reminiscent of what happened with George Floyd. On September 21, 2020, which was ironically the World Peace Day, the Colombian society held protests throughout the country. And in response to these demonstrations, the Colombian state used its repressive power. These mobilizations in Colombia were triggered primarily by police brutality. On September 9, 2020, Javier Ordonez, an aeronautical engineer and father of two, was pinned to ground by two police officers in Bogota and repeatedly teased with a, teased with a stun gun as he begged, please, no more, I can't breathe. When he was transferred to the hospital after this unprecedented show of brutality, he was pronounced dead. Ordonez was barbarically killed by the police just because he was found drinking alcohol in the street with others in violation of the social distancing rules. The response of the police officers to this violation was obviously disproportionate. Before the officers attacked him, Ordonez had appealed to his right to appear before the authorities if he had committed any illegal act. With his last words, he had further implored, give me the fine. This latest act of police brutality wasn't new. During the anti-neoliberal protests of 2019, Colombia had police violence of a similar scale. Uh, the phenomenon of police brutality in Colombia is overtly linked to US imperialism, which has heavily militarized the country and initiated a regime of violence geared towards capital accumulation. With the help of this regime of violence, anti-imperialist social movements have been coercively halted and the dominance of the Washington oligarchy has been maintained. The institution of this regime of violence can be traced back to the history of FARC, which rapidly built powerful bases of counter-hegemony and thus necessitated an American military intervention in the form of Operation Marco Italia. Uh, as is evident from Operation Marco Italia, USA militarily assisted the Colombian state whenever it saw a threat to its imperialist dominance. Since then, its strategy has been evolving, and now it uses the pretext of counterinsurgency and drug war to militarize Colombia. Uh, we have already talked about Plan Colombia, which has uh, merely functioned as another military program to repress social movements. 50% of Plan Colombia's budget was devoted to counter-narcotics operation, a term for a brutal repression of social movements and since plan colombia's initiation violence has significantly increased and from 2000 to 2010 approximately 6000 civilians have been killed by state security forces plan colombia's disastrous results are expected because militarization is closely tied to increased aggressions heavy weaponry uh, and combat training that come with militarization 
invariably translate into increased disruptive capacity and this enlarged capacity transforms into the use of excessive force against civilians uh, and with the establishment of uh, plan colombia the disruptive capacity of various forces exponentially increased as military assistance poured in from the us and with the steady flow of military assistance from us the police architecture of colombia became more bellicose and militaristic and through its security aid we can say that the us has military really repressed social movements which challenged the dynamics of capitalism and imperialism and that is how um, the global capitalist order will respond when the people will rise up I don't believe so honestly it's just um, it's been awesome to hear so much about Colombia you know I think most people know a little bit but um you know to actually you know deep dive in it like that is uh been fantastic honestly i just wanted to sort of speak as little as possible and uh let the guest talk as much as possible honestly yeah it's been such an, an incredible learning experience but i am just going to respond to that there regarding the police brutality you know this social distancing leading to death i mean it's that simple what causes somebody to lose the humanity so much that they can just go around killing people over you know small infractions of the law as if that's a kind of justification not only is it not the police's job role but you know it happens precisely because that's what world they're living in that's what environment they're living in they're constantly oppressing themselves the police i'm sure they don't live the life of luxury i'm sure they don't have comfy bourgeois lives everybody's struggling to make hands meet the people are oppressed whether you're police or as i said the the capitalist in these neoliberal countries you you're still oppressed by an even bigger oppressor and that is us western imperialism it's that simple so of course people are going to snap and start killing each other because that's what we'll be living i mean after all we have armies so that people can can kill each other it's not not you know it's, it's just baffling baffling but thank you so much yanis thank you before we sign off on where people could find you i'd absolutely kick myself if i didn't ask you what did you think of the 250 million people march in, in india recently yeah it was a historic strike and it was inevitable because the three farm laws they will just hand over the agricultural sector to multinational corporations and indian corporations also and the ma- main uh, beneficiary of these farm laws will be the adani group uh, uh, it is a bourgeois family which is which has close relations with uh, the ruling dispensation and what we are seeing in india is the unified action of uh, industrial workers peasants and what now remains to be done is the involvement of uh, indigenous sectors and slowly the proletarian movement which we are seeing right now in india is also incorporating political elements uh, for example it is uh, protesting against growing authoritarianism so the mood in india is extremely optimistic in terms of revolutionary possibilities wow you actually thought it was inevitable like it was actually really foreseeable it was foreseeable because since the initiation of green revolution in 1970s the agricultural sector has been suffering serious damage mass suicides by farmers um, uh, are visible to everyone and 
the citizens for themselves thinking that sooner or later the farmers will rise up now to tie this back into the episode are we gonna start seeing a reaction fascism coming down on the people as we see in colombia in the form of paramilitary groups in india today if the people continue to protest like this do you think yes i think there will be a, a fascist reaction from above because already in india we have right wing groups and they have been preparing for this kind of movement for a long time and uh, there is a high probability that right wing groups will again mobilize to counteract the growing effectiveness of uh, incipiently socialist movements Thank you so much. We will let you go now. We've absolutely appreciated, enjoyed, loved this discussion, this information, and we know that people are going to get a lot out of it also. Where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they continue to support your work? I actually am not on any social media platforms and uh, my uh, email address is yanisikbar@gmail.com and you can uh, find my work on Eurasia Review. Znet and MR online. Awesome. Thank you so much, Janis. Thank you. Awesome. Is there anything any final words, any messages to to the people and anything you want to ask us before we let you go? No, not no not any particular message, but I will just ask them that they actively engage themselves in the new revolutionary movement which is again emerging due to the contradictions of capitalism. Thank you. With that being said, we're going to sign off. That's been me, Shabby. We've got Ryan, the Zen Marxist, and incredible guest, Yanis. Workers and Lumpen of the World, unite. The American um, civil rights activist and philosopher Cornel West talks, says justice is what love's, love look, looks like in public. And so I, what I wrote is that um, neoliberalism is actually what lovelessness looks like in public that that now after four decades of these policies and but the reason why I say the book came out on June 12th is that just one week later was the Grenfell Tower fire and you know I, I feel like this catastrophe right um, this crime really in so many ways is the ultimate symbol um, of that lovelessness as policy of that neglect of that systematic neglect and systematic discrimination but also of that hollowness that you're asking about right because of this um, extraordinary cruelty of this investment in in image like the in, the investment in the aesthetic and in such sharp contrast to the divestment of the inside of the interior right how can i do a fire in the booth when i'm trying just to maintain and since june don't hear the word fire in the same way heard screams splatters and them gasping for air that's not bars in a booth it's so hard to compare if i use fire as a metaphor does that disrespect the people that are never more how does that bomb sound sound to those that bled in war that we never saw remember when they settled scores with metal swords that skeletal chinese made gunpowder nobel invented dynamite they say the guilt in his mind compelled him to design the prize We know what Einstein's mind was like how many geniuses we never knew that were deprived of life I can't philosophize on horrifying flames we don't have to apologize or qualify our pain to grimfalize our loved ones of the colonizer's name should we let the corporate media lobotomize our brains you are beautiful no matter how this life disfigures you you're beautiful even if that image you emulate isn't you I don't know if history is linear or cyclical but no I'm ridiculed for making invisibles visible that's why Plato said banish poets from the republic cuz they know that 
we can shake the social system and disrupt it The land of liberty, they tell us leave it or lump it When Trump comes to the country, we hope he chokes on his crumpet Before we sink in the ocean, consider this as an omen Nature's blessings are ours just cause we think that we own them Never think that you're broken, or think that you're no one Remember a rope is strong because of strings interwoven We love days We love days And believe that you belong Overcompensate and propagate The image of the imbecile Not uninvolved Even though you're further from the killing field Solace in the fact There's always cracks in the monolith Practically lobbing bricks Like asterisks and obelisks Distracted with gossipers Twisted news and interludes Adverse, no hidden clues To listen to is pitiful Rosa Luxemburg gave us the simple truth You won't feel your chains Till the day you begin to move He photographed the corpse And he flung him in the cage Those that signed off on the cladding Are still receiving their wage Helicopters hover close Pictures of the front page Tried to speak All I really felt deep was numb rage How could they see this pain At such a young age Leaning out the window Screaming for help But none came If it bleeds it leads The trauma tourists They gravitate Shock doctrine in effect Disaster capitalists salivate Privatisation Deregulation and austerity Zero hour contracts Exploitation and precarity Adults didn't make it Children to be Save pennies on the block Drop 20 million on the opera We see through your cold plans Your program is done We don't want a prime minister That holds hands with Trump We don't want DJs doing shows On military compounds Can't trivialize fire Or hear any more bomb sounds I cannot smile When I know the remains Are still not found And echoing in my mind Is exactly how the sobs sound We love days We love days Say we're criminals for syllables and stanzas When they subsidise the killers' tools The pillagers and bankers Who are the engines of history? People like me and you Who got massacred For the right to vote at Peter Lou It was Imagineers the poets and the artists, the miners told puddle martyrs, William Cuffey and the chartists rebel and resist, even through something small, create windows with words and mirrors where once were walls, manure contributes to the beauty of a rose, why can't we accept our pain as something that helps us grow, they wonder why songs that make you cry are more moving, cause crying's the only thing that we were born doing, they tell us tea is tradition to the English, when I look around this island, not a tea plantation in it. Earl Grey gave 20 million to the slave traders Multipolar world, now the Indians are space raiders Freedom to be even or merely alienate Labour freedom for fossil fuel is to desecrate and invade nature Albert was an immigrant, Philip was an immigrant Were the Celts, Normans and the Anglo-Saxons English then? The words sugar, cotton and rice come from Arabic Now we import democracy to civilise the Saracens Analyzing planets when this backwater was wilderness Seems we're still obsessed with immortality Like Gilgamesh, pessimism of intellect, optimism of will where the skin of their victims is syndrome buffalo bill in times of permanent war there's always someone to kill but when life and death are virtual almost nothing is real we love days we love days we love days so neoliberal we love days we love days
Kills people, kills people, neoliberalism kills people, kills people. 